You're listening to All Things Relax with Sandy D. Inspiring women to relax, rejuvenate, and find their inner zen. Here's your host, Sandy D. Hello and welcome to our show. Today I'm talking with author Ellen Byram based in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Sandy. It's a delight. Great. So let's jump right in and get started. Uh, Could you tell our listeners more about you, your background, and your work? Well, there's not that much to tell, I suppose. I'm a writer, and I've always been a writer in different ways. I guess, different professional statuses. I've been a journalist. I was a journalist in Washington for um, about 20 years, and I loved it. I loved being a reporter uh, because Washington is such a rich area in which to report and observe. And also in Washington, I was able to be part of the theater world and and understand that that Washington is like two different cities. One is the political and one is the rest of the world. And a lot of people don't understand that there is a whole nother city there and, and different um, aspects to it. Much of the arts, artists, um, writers, actors, and that was really a, a great experience. So I have been uh, a journalist, a playwright, And now I write mystery novels. And one thing I will say about playwriting and journalism is that they together are the best preparation for becoming a novel writer. Because in journalism, you you learn a lot of disciplines. You learn how to write fast. You learn how to uh, accumulate the facts and decipher what's important. Uh, You... You always are looking for the good quote. In playwriting, you really concentrate on characters and dialogue and character arc. So I think putting those two together really make for uh, a great education before becoming a mystery writer. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, and I just want to make a quick note to those um, listening, too. I know Ellen from a very long time ago because she (laughs) mentions uh, where she was a journalist. I actually worked for the same employer, and it was um, the Bureau of National Affairs, which was... Yeah, which was at the time, um, it's been since acquired by Bloomberg, but at the time it was the oldest employee-owned uh, company, a publishing company. So. It was. It was really like a, a little bit of Camelot in the in the publishing world and even the employment world. I've never had any place else that was so attuned to employees because it's employee-owned. We had every yeah. benefit in the world. We had... Um, a reasonable work schedule. And it was, it was terrific. And I I will always be grateful for it. Yeah, me too. Likewise. Uh, Can you tell our listeners more about how you decided to mix fashion clues with solving crimes in your crimes of fashion series? Okay. Well, I actually, again, there are a couple of things that played into it is that I was reading a lot of mystery novels and I love them and I love the characters, mystery novels specifically by women, where the characters were rough and tough and they could fight and they could outthink the guy. But there was always this point in the book where I got to where the heroine uh, announces or confesses that she has no idea how to dress herself. And I really thought that was ridiculous. I thought (laughs) we've got to be able to have a heroine who can dress herself and, you know, do all these other things. She can outthink, she can outshoot, she can outfight the guys, she can, you know, run circles around them, but also do that in heels and pearls and whatever else she chooses. But also at the time, I was feeling that the style in Washington, D.C. was a tad dowdy. So, uh, oh, yes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I actually recant, I re- regret and, you know, recast that now because now I think they look fabulous because I'm in Denver. So I always call Washington the city that fashion forgot. But now that I am in Denver temporarily, I consider Denver the city that fashion never said hello to. So that's that's where you go. (laughs) Everything is perspective. But I have had fun with fashion bites and Washington fashion. And, And there's actually 
a very specific sense of fashion in Washington. And you really can tell the power players. And in one of my books, I talk about the P-Whips, which are powerful women in pearls. And I really like to deal with, you know, what is the power structure of this? What are the power colors for women? How do how do they dress? How do they think? And also, um, there's another fashion bite that I talk about, which is how can you tell if you're prematurely serious, which I think is <laughs> another style note in Washington is being the prematurely serious. And these are the, you know, 20 something interns with the serious black glasses and the serious suits. And you know, I, I imagine that they simply wear their name tags to bed. So um, <laughs> there's a lot to work with in, in Washington, but there's also, you know, the theatrical side of things too, where, um, there's like creative black tie where you, an actor might wear a gold lame skirt with sneakers. So it's it's rich and, and I do love it and I do celebrate it. Wow. Well, thank you so much for telling us more. Yeah, um, I was just actually telling you too, literally like right before coming on for this interview, I just finished reading um, one of your crime of fashion Crimes of Fashion series books, um, The Lethal Black Dress, which is, of course, set in Washington, D.C., and the um, the heroine, Lacey Smithsonian, of course, <laughs> anybody who's been to Washington, D.C. can appreciate the last name there, <laughs> but it was fantastic. I just, I love how you wove, you know, fashion, and in this particular one, you know, it's vintage fashion into the story. It was just brilliant, so I just want to say I love it. Well, thank you. I I really enjoyed that. I always wanted to go back to the White House Correspondents' Dinner because I attended three of them during my tenure as a reporter at BNA. But also, I had heard about dyes in uh, the 19th century that were poisonous. And I wanted to know as I often do, a question turns into a, you know, a what if, and uh, this was a how could you kill somebody with a poison dress? Right. You know, and how could you activate that poison? Um, so, and you know how I activated it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I won't give away the secret. You have to go read the book. <laughs> so there's just always questions and, you know, layers and layers of, of questions and answers and ideas and, and characters. So that was kind of where that came out of. Yeah. Wow. It's fantastic. Ellen, do you mind sharing now, you said that you also write plays. So do you mind sharing why you decided to use a nom de plume or pseudonym for um, well, your pseudonym or nom de plume, Elliot Byram, for your plays? And can you tell us a little bit more about your work as a playwright? Uh, yes, I, I love plays. I love playwriting and playwriting and mysteries share a lot of the same aspects. But uh, playwriting is so divine, I think. When you hear an audience applaud, it's it's like warm sunshine just pouring down on you, like honey pouring down on you, and it's so great. On the other hand, when you have an awful play or an awful cast or something has gone terribly wrong, there's no greater agony than having it all play out in public. In right. <laughs> so that's bad. Um, but I was writing plays as Ellen, uh, and then I, I realized Ellen wasn't getting much traction. So I, I just sort of looked at the New York times, read the New York times every week, even though I wasn't in New York. And I would turn to the page where they had all the plays and all the men, all the males and female playwrights. And I did a very unscientific, uh, study of this and it looked like there were on Broadway, and this was at Broadway at the time, there was only one play by a female playwright on Broadway when I did this. And wow. it was 10 to one, men, men to women. And, uh, you know, off Broadway was seven to three. So it didn't get to become more equal numbers until it was off off Broadway. Yeah. And it was women producing their own shows. And they were basically one woman shows. Uh, and I think that you know, nothing against the theaters, but I do think that there was, you know, they simply reached for male names uh, at the time. Maybe this is not true now, right. but also play, theaters all say they want women's plays. They want diversity. Uh, but I think that also there was the, 
an aspect to it where they thought, okay, we've got our woman's plane. Now we can relax and go look for other planes. Yeah, here's the token woman, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So mm-hmm. um, not to say that that happens now, but it could. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I have certainly found that Elliot has done a lot better than Ellen did. And mm-hmm. also I would rather be graded or, you know, judged or barred on the same line as males, uh, playwrights. And obviously it shouldn't matter, but it does sometimes. (laughs) And also I I love the name Elliot and my father who's since died called me up and he had, he had seen my play or he'd read it or actually he hated plays. This is, this is one of those weird things is my, my, we never went to plays when I was growing up. My father hated plays, but he called me because I like your, I like your name, Elliot. And I said, <laughs> Oh, you do. That's good. He goes, well, what else are you going to call yourself? Elmer? And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so he knew instinctively why I did it. Right. <laughs> but so that that's it. I, I had not written plays for many years because I went into writing books. And I went to write books when I realized I did not have to go to every theater in the United States and say, will you please do my play? But if you had a uh, book published, you know, people would just buy it. Right. And and that landscape has changed a bit too, as well. Right. Well, especially, I guess, um, now in the world of self-publishing, right? I mean, that's changed things a lot, I would imagine. It's it's really crazy, and I have chosen to independently publish my books. I was with a publisher for the first nine books in my series with Penguin yeah. Putnam, um, but I just really decided that I wanted I wanted to do it myself. They they had offered me another contract, same bad contract, I guess I yeah. can say that. And I think contracts are not getting any better right yeah. now. Um, advances are falling and, and now publishers want every right that you could ever dream up in, and ones that have not been invented yet. So you're signing your life away pretty much. (laughs) Your life plus 70 years, you know, you're signing your, you technically own your copyright, but they have use of your copyright for your lifetime and 70 years after. So I got my, my rights back and having control is just a, a different ball game. So I will say that I don't make less than I do right. with a publisher. That's good. Yeah. And, and like you said, you have control over what you do with your work. So, yeah. yes. And especially important to me, things like your cover art. Mm-hmm. So we, we changed all the cover art to, I think, you know, I love the original covers because they did sell and, and they were, um, you know, to a softer audience, but yeah. I think that they, they didn't really recognize that the, my books are more satirical. Right. Exactly. They, they have a hard edge and yeah. they just wanted to make them look like these little cotton candy books. So with the new covers, I, I think that they, they also say fashion and I don't think there was anything much about the original covers that said fashion. Right. Um, so I think now that they, they do say more mystery and fashion and, and style. So, you know, these are all decisions that you make and some are good and some are bad. Right. Right. Wow. Well, thanks. So we're going to take a really short break. And when we come back, let's talk more about the creative writing process. Are you a life or health coach? Looking for a way to connect with potential clients? Having your own podcast is a great way to broaden your reach, share your expertise, and build relationships with your audience. My producer G and I invite you to check out our e-course, The Introvert's Guide to Rocking Your Podcast. You'll learn how to define your show, get in the right mindset, and podcast like a pro. Find your star power and rock your podcast. Visit allthingsrelaxstudios.com. You have a voice and it deserves to be heard. So Ellen, could you please tell us more about your creative writing process? Yes, I'm sure people are fascinated. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I will say that my process is very long. It can be from the time I have an idea, it can be years before that idea comes to fruition. So a lot of my ideas simply have to simmer for, 
for a long time. And I'm quite embarrassed about it sometimes because I talked with a friend recently who worked at BNA and she said, um, you know, I have recently put out uh, a book, Shiloctopus Holmes, Eight Arms of the Law, my children's book. And I am now working on the prequel to my crime of fashion books. And she said, you talked about both of these when you were still at BNA. And that has been over 10 years. So I was just horrifically embarrassed. On the other hand, I know that part of my process is, you know, my ideas have to get in line. <laughs> they, can't right. all, they can't all be attended to at once. So um, that's, that's interesting. So a long time and, and, you know, not to disdain that, not to say, Oh, one day I'm going to do that because yeah. one day I will do that. Uh, my writing process is also strange because I often have, Maybe not often, but I do have ideas that have popped up in my dreams. Oh, that's so, really cool. Yeah. The idea for Sherlocktopus, uh, <laughs> Eight Arms of the Law, uh, <laughs> came to me in a dream. And it was it was fun because I dreamt – this was right after my first book was published. And okay. I dreamt that I was having uh, a meeting in New York with my then editor, Jenny. And she was, she was a terrific editor. And I turned in my second book in the dream, and she said – well, this is this is fine, but what the publisher really wants is a book about crime fighting octopus. And I was so <laughs> mad, I woke up and I shook my husband and I said, Now they want books about crime fighting octopus. And he just turns <laughs> over and he goes, I guess that's Sherlocktopus Holmes. And that's he went right hilarious. Back. <laughs> so, and you and you remember it. <laughs> yeah, and oh, it's I just love it. there it was. It was just hanging around in my head for many, many years. Um and another dream is I am currently working on a book that I haven't told many people about. And this one yeah. is coming very quickly, which vi- doesn't happen. So when uh-huh. it does, I want to take it and run with it, even though I'm supposed yeah. to be writing another book. But uh, I have a book called Crook Tales for Two. Hmm. It takes place in 1934 and it's just frothy. It's frothy yeah. and fun, like a pre-code movie. And I got <laughs> the very first scene. I dreamt the, the very first scene uh, in yeah. in the book and I, I wrote it down. And it just, I find that if you have a dream that, that intrigues you and is funny and is fully plotted, uh, you should write it down and consider it because yeah. not all dreams are, are just, you know, floating around pieces of your day. Maybe they are. So <laughs> right. Maybe 1934 was floating around in my consciousness and mobsters uh-huh. and guns. But um, anyway, so I do find dreams particular. Also, part of my process, getting back to process, yeah. I write on the computer, but I also write by hand. And I find oh, this now this let me interrupt for a second. This mm-hmm. fascinates me because I feel like I am kind of that generation that's like betwixt and between because I still prefer feeling the the pen, you know, ink to the paper. But then I appreciate the fact that it is easier to use the computer because then you can easily move stuff around and then you don't have to go back and type it all in. So I want to hear more about that. I think it's true. I can actually feel the difference. I think there's a complete difference brain hand you know brain arm hand paper and it flows so if you are in the mood and you can just let it flow and flow and write it down especially if you write cursive yeah and particularly Mm -hmm. if you went to catholic school and had nuns teach you how to oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) they have little rulers (laughs) (laughs) no no just just you know we really uh, dwelled in the land of penmanship. Yeah. So I really like it. And when you do that, you're, you have to have your tools, right. your pen, your paper, paper, but you know, I love fountain pens. Uh, I cannot use a big pen. My hand just wants to throw it away. I, you yeah. know, there's so many pens I don't want to use, but if I have the right tool, it makes it a lot better. Now, that being said, then I can go to the computer input what I have and, and just rewrite and on the computer. So I think it's for me, I use both, but I don't think I could start without hand to paper because to me, that is really, really key. And, and that's where it flows where I'm not worrying about, you know, cut and paste and copy and move and and that I'm just going with the flow. Yeah. Well, plus I find too, like just the, once you're in the computer, at least for me, I find like, 
then I start worrying all about like format and all that instead of content. So when it's like just the pen and paper for me, it's more like, um, you know, the, the content over how is it going to be formatted and all that. So, and yeah, well, that's, I, I appreciate hearing you describe. It just flows. It flows. I was just going to say the state of flow. You're like in that creative Zen. (laughs) Yeah. I also like to write, um, at coffee shops, bookstores, Mm -hmm. And libraries. And that has been very difficult during the pandemic. Right. Is anything at all open, like out in your area in Denver no, right now? Or is not, it all closed? Not a here? place I can go and write. Like the coffee yeah. shops are all closed. Libraries you can apparently visit, but then you've got to get out or you order yeah. your books online. Um, it's difficult. And I'm really waiting for that. Uh, this summer, uh, in the early months of the pandemic, you know, we have this uh, funny old fashioned old lady porch on the back of our house because yeah. our house used to belong to Bob's aunt. Uh-huh. And so there's this glassed in patio and we really made use of that room um, all summer when it was warm into the fall. And it was it was good. I need different spaces to write. Yeah. But, it changes scenery. <laughs> I just read a study that said um Coffee shops really add to your creativity. And I believe, especially if you were a journalist in a newsroom where you have all of this activity going on around you, and you love that. Um, As a journalist, you know, first of all, you're working on your story, but you're also listening to see what other scoop somebody else has gotten, you know, right? (laughs) (laughs) and if they're excited. But you're you're sort of aware of everything. And this study... uh, justified those thoughts because people actually can be more creative in a coffee shop, in a place, even if they're not, you know, interacting with people. It's just that the activity level heightens your creativity somehow. Oh, wow. Well, that's cool. So I'm missing coffee shops terribly um, or just a space like that. Hopefully we're at a point. I don't know if it's going to be by this summer, but hopefully by the fall, things will be back to... I I think so. I mean, we just, the restaurants here just opened at 50%. Okay. If they, yeah. you know, jump through, through some hoops. Um, but as far as my uh, process, I will say what I do not do. Yeah. That a lot of people do. I do not journal. Right. I do not write outlines. Mm-hmm. I do not do extraneous writing exercises and I don't write character Bibles or histories. I think all of these work for some people and, you know, more power to you if you get them to work. But to me, they're just incredible time sucks. And right. they, uh, for instance, writing an outline for me is kind of like a vampire. It sucks all the energy out of the project because you try and pre-think a lot of things. But as for me, I think that right, I know then, where I'm going. And and if you can't right, take detours exactly. and away, I can imagine. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, if you're stuck to, like, an outline, I mean, of course you could change that. But it just seems to me very constricting as far as with, with respect to the creative process. And as you say, yeah, it might work for other people. But, yeah, I, I could see how that could be kind of cramping your style, so to say. Right. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> the when when I had a contract, it, they demanded an outline because that is part of the structure of your pay. You know, right. you have you, uh, on signing, you get a certain part of your advance, and then you get uh, another portion of your advance when you have an outline. And I just couldn't stand doing the outline because, you know, they're just out there. Now I've talked to people who said, "Oh, I just write three pages of nonsense and turn it in." Um, I think a lot of editors never look at them, but right. I found them to be really restricting and I didn't, I don't do that. Um, one thing I recommend is keeping pen and paper near your bed mm-hmm. and you can buy light up pens at, uh, office supply stores. I find them really good because, um, you really need to write ideas down before they disappear with the dawn. Yeah, yeah. No matter how much you say, oh, this is so good. I'm going to remember it. I'm so sleepy, but I will remember this idea. You won't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I've had dreams where I'm like, I have to remember this. And I wake up, what was that? <laughs> yeah. 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 So those are really pretty much um, 
a lot of my process. I also find that rewriting is absolutely key. You Mm -hmm. get so much. And and another thing I believe, these are things I believe, (laughs) is that you do not know your book until you finish it. Right. It's like you, when you finish it, you go, Oh, this is what that's about. And this is that and these connections. And I think, you know, your brain is wonderful because your brain is making all kinds of connections that you're not aware of until you're finished with the book. So when you go through and rewrite, you know so much about your characters and your story and your action and, and rewriting is great. And I have read a lot of books where I think it could have, used another rewrite oh, yes and, and i know right. that people are under the gun to get things out so wow. that's sad. so next question for you what advice would you give other writers as far as working through writer's block or like what advice would you give to the writer who's got a story to share but they have yet to just sit down and start writing um can i answer that one first about yeah writers? go for it yeah you know, i know so many people who say, if I could just sit down and write. And I think, well, sit down. Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Just do it. Um, So I think the secret there is butt glue. And Uh this is a secret all of of us writers know. We know that you need butt glue. You have to have a certain amount of discipline to just do it. You can't just go, oh, if I could just sit down. I mean, it just makes it sound like we've got a crisis in this country of people not being able to sit down. Do you not have a chair? Right. (laughs) You don't have a sofa? So um, butt glue. But uh, writer's block, it's different because I think there are different forms of writer's block. Yeah. And one of them is that I experience a lot is when I'm starting basically a new book and I want to write it and I want to write it and somehow you're blocked. And I think that's part of the simmering process. Maybe it's not through cooking yet. Right. Um, And I think that sometimes you realize that that is part of the process that you can't write until you get to the point where you can't not write. And then it's such a relief um, for people. And, but then there's other writer's block where you just, just can't get into it. Can't think about it. Can't do it. Um, I would recommend very simple things to try and just get your mind off that. Uh, take a long walk, Uh, do something else that might be creative, uh, refinish furniture or, or make something or, you know, sketch i couldn't sketch to save my life i'd like to i can't draw a stick (laughs) somehow i started painting for stress relief but i cannot yeah so i i think that sometimes when you're doing something like that ideas will come when you simply get your mind off the problem Uh, another thing that uh, i'm suffering from in this pandemic is i have for years gone to aqua aerobics So like from three to five times a week and the pool is closed and it's killing me. Yeah. It's just terrible. But uh, I would get so many ideas just going through the motions and the pool and the water. And I I just really, I'm a water baby. I love the water. So it's very difficult not having the water. Oh, I Uh, can imagine. Yeah. Cause I mean, just water in general as far as the relaxing sort of I can imagine just the relaxation and just kind of the flow of ideas yeah that must mm-hmm. be really yeah. difficult hmm. I think it needs to be warm water though I hate cold pools <laughs> so. I don't do cold <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you're just you're just freezing when you're in a cold pool you're not thinking you're not letting your mind go but I think that yeah. there's for me particularly something about a pool and the water and and letting it go so um I cannot wait for the day when the pools reopen yeah i can i can understand that wow um ellen you more recently branched out and wrote a children's book which you mentioned earlier shaloctopus homes could you tell us more about the book and also and more about the artist who illustrated it as well yes (laughs) uh well, of course, as I mentioned, I had this dream years and years and years ago about Sherlock Holmes, yeah. Eight Arms of the Law. And <laughs> I did write a draft of a story about Sherlock when I was at BNA. And then I realized it was horrible. It was terrible. And I needed to write this in rhymes. So the mm-hmm. book is rhymed. 
And I had to, you know, work through that. And it adds a much more fun layer uh, to the book to to do it with rhymes. And I have rhyming definitions for kids. And I will tell you about my wonderful illustrator, Jacqueline Bergman-Glatinier. She and I met at the pool. Oh, cool. Doing aqua aerobics. Yeah. And so it's, she heard that I was writing a children's book and she, she said that uh, she would like to be considered for the artwork. And I had been to a couple of her art shows. She's a wonderful artist. And she was also very French. She said, and if I do not like it, I will tell you. I love it. Yes, French can be very direct. <laughs> so I, I thought, okay, fine. But yeah. she came back and she says, I love it. So she uh, she did it. Now, we both sort of stumbled through. Uh, my husband, Bob, always says that when we, you know, now we know enough to start a book. Right. But we were really, you know, she just did this wonderful artwork. But now we would know exactly what size we want, um, yeah. you know, where to leave space for text, so we have learned a lot in, in Jacqueline as well. Um, so it was very interesting and it was wonderful to be able to work directly with her. Yeah. Uh, I also uh, decided to join um, a children's book writers group, uh, the Society of Children's Book Illustrators and Authors. And actually, that's probably not the exact name, but okay. uh, it's like Squeeby society of all this <laughs> excuse me and i went to yeah i went to a presentation seminar where an editor from a big publisher gave uh, a presentation on children's books and quite frankly after that i wanted to stab myself because oh. she she went through it and it just sounded like absolute torture and it would take she she talked about a book that took a children's book, you know, 32 pages, children's yeah. book. It took four and a half years from acceptance to publication. That's ridiculous. And, what? I mean, wow. it sounds ridiculous to us because, yeah. you know, I would write a 100,000 page mystery novel. Yeah. And it would be published within a year. Yeah. So we'll also say it's very difficult, you know, when you're, you know, rhyming and in this, but um, the process that she described sounded like absolute torture. Yeah. But also the authors do not communicate with the illustrators. Oh, I don't like that at all. Really? Yeah. Yeah. No. And uh, you know, she was telling stories of people like, oh, well, we bought the story, but then we decided not to use her illustrator. And that would be a very, a difficult situation, I think, yeah. um, to, to be in, to, first of all, not know. I remember getting my very first cover for my first book and it was, it was of the time and, uh, it, the book is killer hair mm-hmm. and the illustration was very comic book and what they term cozy. And as I said, I don't believe my novels are that, but they've got a harder edge. Oh, definitely edgy, yeah. <laughs> I got the cover and I went, oh my gosh, Judy Jetson gets a haircut. I mean, that's what it looked like. <laughs> oh, no. So I was, um, you know, you convince yourself that you love them. And I did because they sold well. Right. But then I wanted uh, a more grown-up cover. But I cannot even imagine having a book and having an editor say, well, I don't like the first three lines, rewrite them, or Mm. I'm dropping the first three lines, or I'm restoring the first three lines. And this is like the process that the editor went through. And I was just kicking myself thinking, I can't do that. Yeah. Uh, You know, why would I turn in my book to a New York press if that's going to happen? And I won't know what the illustrations look like. So I really loved being able to work with Jacqueline and um, on the art yeah, and discovering the whole process of going through that. But um, I'll say that, you know, putting out a book during a pandemic is not exactly the smartest marketing decision you can make either. <laughs> so, Although people have more time to read. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it's just, um, the other thing about Sherlock Bus, uh is that I was kind of egged on or, you know, encouraged yeah. by kids at church. 
Oh, really? Um, huh. Well, you know, after church, you always have coffee and donuts. Yeah. So uh, we met their parents and, you know, just talking here and there. And I said, oh, you know, and they had a bunch of little kids. Yeah. Uh, they actually have four children. And I was talking about Shalactopus. Well, the kids were very interested. It's like, Aww. when's that octopus coming out, you know? <laughs> and so I started to rewrite the story of Shalactopus in earnest. And I, you know, and then it'd be like, do you have pages? <laughs> so I had these pint sized <laughs> editors coming up to me every week. And then um, oh. actually the, one of the funniest experiences was, you know, Jack, the oldest uh, has, has been very direct in, in wanting to know when the book is coming out. Yeah. And he's like, say, when is that book coming out? And then things like, how long have you been working on that book? Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't tell him four and a half years. <laughs> right. Can you imagine? I know. So, yeah, I, so I, I assume he got a signed copy, huh? <laughs> oh, yes. 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 <laughs> they have their own copy and oh. they were adorable. And they sent me thank yous and little pictures of, that they drew Aww. of octopuses and starfish because there's uh, Dr. Flotsam is a starfish and she uh -huh. is Sherlocktopus's friend. Aww. And I didn't mention why I used a uh, starfish because, you know, it's a children's book, but octopuses don't eat starfish. They eat uh, pretty much everything, everything but else. not starfish. <laughs> so that's why uh, Flotsam, Dr. Flotsam is uh -oh. the... Uh, stand in for Dr. Watson. I love it. Oh, that's perfect. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to get a copy for my nephews. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, let's see what else I was like. Oh, you know, I do want to um, add another question in there. So okay. tell me a little bit more about like, because of the pandemic and not being able to do things like in person, like book signings and all that, what have you, how have you pivoted as far as, like marketing, I know you have a newsletter, but like how how have you changed anything as far as getting the word out there about your books? Well, golly, I'm going to have to say not very well. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's tricky, you know. Sometimes I mean, this is a great uh, way, you know. Right. Your podcast is a terrific way. Yeah. I need to be more proactive about looking into that, and yeah. um, and also this past year, I concentrated on finishing two plays yeah. that had been on my plate for a number of years, as we know, because, <laughs> um, but I had to, I just had to get them out. Sometimes you just, you, you feel the urge and I, I am a great believer in going with that. Yeah. And, um, as much as I wanted to continue work on my series and continue work on the prequel, I just had to get these two plays out. So that's what I did. And, um, you know, plays I've been submitting to different theater groups, but they're closed. They are right. dark. Um, there are some Zoom readings of plays, but I think I would rather wait until the theaters are open again. Yeah. So yeah. concentrate on doing that. And also now, um, you know, I, ha I have some ideas about what I want to do with uh, the prequel mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to my book. And if I tell you, what I plan to do, then I'm going to be stricken with guilt if I don't do it. So I probably should tell you what I would <laughs> like to do. Yeah. Um, I'm working on a book called, uh, oh, what is it? <laughs> then you, <laughs> then you start forgetting the names of all your books. Oh no, uh, I know it's too many. <laughs> so it is, it is the sequel to my crime of fashion mysteries. It's called the brief luminous flight of the firefly. Oh, cool. It is set during world war two in Washington, DC and it concerns uh, a young woman who dies and she is uh, a lady of the night. And yeah. um, the sleuth character is Lacey Smithsonian's great aunt, Mimi Smith, oh, Mimi? Oh. who was, oh yeah. Who was a young woman in Washington during the war. So what I am doing is, you know, I have done a lot of research and some of the best research comes out of magazines from the time, yeah. Life Magazine, Mademoiselle, which gives you a real sense of day to day what they were doing. So I would like to start doing like a minute or two of research, you know, like on Facebook or Instagram and um, tell people, you know, what was going on during yeah. those times and what sorts of, of research I'm pulling on. Right. For instance, in 1943, uh, there was a bill that had been introduced to uh, draft women. 
into oh, the world. Oh, wow. Really? And I'm pretty wow. sure not a lot of people know that. Obviously, it no. didn't go anywhere. Right. But it was a topic of conversation. Uh, when women go into the war, what is going to happen to their babies? Yeah. Um, you know, if they're, if they're married, uh, I noticed a huge change in Mademoiselle magazine that I was, that I think was a wonderful magazine is that it went from being pretty much specifically to the young single woman. Then all of a sudden we've got babies, we've got babies in the magazine and how you take care of them. And, you know, stories about, um, you know, soldier husbands away at, uh, in the war, so there are so many tumultuous uh, bits of of the landscape, and they had to deal with a lot of things. Rationing. Um, oh yeah, my mom was born in 1944, so she would tell me. I mean, she doesn't remember the war, but yeah. she she would remember through stories from my grandparents about you know having like those tickets or whatever to get the food, right. and and how they had like a the victory garden, like growing your own food. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was tough. And I think that there may have been a portion of this, that there wasn't so much um, <clears throat> of lax, although, you know, they did want to get everything to the soldiers as this created a bond among Americans and everywhere. You know, if you have a victory garden, you're doing your part for the war. Right. Yeah if you follow ration tickets. And, you know, I created horrible problems for myself writing this book because I made Mimi work for the Office of Price Administration. Well, everybody hated the Office of Price Administration. (laughs) Uh, But it was involved in black market, the Mm -hmm. black market and and prices. And um, as a mystery writer, I believe almost anything could lead to murder. So obviously the black market could. Yeah. And we're dealing with... uh, you know, tire, stolen tires, stolen merchandise, stolen sugar uh, that goes, finds its way onto the black market. Yeah. And yeah. they're, you know, very small black markets and very large black markets. And, uh, you know, another problem is that OPA, Office of Price Administration, their infractions were only classified as misdemeanors and not mm-hmm. felonies. So if they found something really big, it would go to a bigger, uh, place, even a police department, someone who would get the credit. Oh, wow. So, um, but I've, I've sort of adjusted a few things and said, well, unless OPA, you know, asked for jurisdiction. So I'm sort of getting around that. But, uh-huh. um, you know, aside from the IRS, people hated the OPA. And oh, wow. sadly, that's where Mimi works. But I have to, <laughs> but people today will not realize how much people hated it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So, oh, that so sounds fascinating. Just, yeah. That's kind of. <laughs> well, I can't wait for that to come out, and I won't hold you to it if you change things. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, well, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> well, it will. I mean, I'm yeah. on the on the way. I think I'm on the hopefully the the downslide home. Mm-hmm. So, wow, that's fascinating. So. Wow. Um, when we come back, I want to talk more about what you do to relax and rejuvenate. Are you ready to go on an escape without leaving your home? Embark on an intriguing adventure with Lacey Smithsonian, a fashion reporter who also solves crimes. Discover Ellen Byram's Crime of Fashion mystery series with a dash of comedy, romance, history, and fashion. Real people, real life in our nation's capital, beyond the glare of politics. Learn more at ellenbyram.com. So, Ellen, what do you do to relax and rejuvenate? Ah, well, I think that, first of all, I call it filling the well. Once I've written a book, I am empty. There's just no energy left for a lot of things. And so... I consider, you know, relaxing and restoration as filling the well. So the first thing I want to do after I finish a book is I want to read anybody else's book. You know, I want to read all the other books that I've been saving up. And um, not that I don't read while I write. I do, but just not at the pace. And sometimes it's just like I just want to gobble up a book a day for a week. You know, Mm -hmm. just read, read, read. Um, Napping. 
Yeah. I consider napping God's gift to the world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and just, I am a firm believer in naps and napping. Uh, I love long walks. Um, I wish the pool was open because the pool is just such a major way for me to, to relax and rejuvenate and see friends. And um, so I am definitely waiting for that. Yeah. Um, I am also waiting for a massage. You know, I really me want to <laughs> go back, get a massage. There's this wonderful place in Denver called the baths and it is a traditional steam bath from i guess the 1920s it's a russian steam bath and it for many years it was for men Uh but there are a couple days a week for women and they have these steam rooms and hot pools and it's very old-fashioned you know it's not at all spalicious or anything like that you know you don't get uh new age music piping through um but it's it's really wonderful so i can't wait for that to come back and i'm waiting for aqua aerobics so i i do all that but um i suppose uh you know i i still exercise and my husband and i we uh are doing stretching tapes every evening okay (laughs) and that that seems to have helped us quite a bit yeah i'm slacking off on any kind of exercises i am ashamed to say i have to get back into it but yeah when you're talking about massage oh i've had like uh the past couple days like issues with like the neck and kind of shoulder area and i i think it's because because of the pandemic for the nine to five job you're not i'm not sitting at a traditional desk because the internet seems to work best at my dining room table and i I still haven't quite figured out like how to get the computer at the right height so that it doesn't. Right. Yeah. So yeah, massage. I could definitely, yeah, I can't wait to, till that's right. back. Well, also I think that it's, it's, we have the weight of the world on our shoulders. So Literally. I think it's more, it's more than just that pain. It is there. And I've been thinking about that in terms of my book from the 1940s. These women went through the world with the weight of the world on their shoulders. And that's why shoulder pads came in. You know, I really think that it was a visual representation of having the world on your shoulders and, you know, you having to go through it. But then again, that's my fashion angle there, you know. Right. Yeah. I love that. So, and I love shoulder pads. I love old suits. I used to wear vintage suits at BNA. Yeah, I remember. You were always stylish. (laughs) Yeah, I remember. (laughs) So, I were the best dressed there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I could dispute that. I won't. No, <laughs> no, you don't need to. There's no competition there. Well, I have no idea. Maybe on the other building, but another floor. Yeah. So. Last but not least, I want to find out from you who or what inspires you, or it could be who and what. Um, I guess you know. I was thinking this in terms of my writing, what inspires me. And I would say, this is going to sound maybe very prosaic, but I think that, you know, questions inspire me and research inspires me. So Mm -hmm. when I am working on a book, um, I'll ask a question. Um, You know, what happened to the lost corset of the Romanovs when the Romanov grand duchesses were executed they were wearing the bulletproof corsets where they had stuffed all of the the jewels. And of course the executioners didn't know that they were wearing jeweled filled cars, corsets, but you know, they start shooting and all of a sudden bullets start ricocheting off those corsets and they weren't dead. They, you know, they were still alive mm-hmm. and um, you know, and then of course terrible, awful things happened and they were, um, executed and the bodies were stripped but i've read books that said they recovered three of the corsets but there was one that they didn't get oh wow so where is it (laughs) well this is a difference between men and women can i tell you yeah Um, yeah the the books i read um one in particular was written by a man and he decided that the reason that there were only four there were three corsets found um, and four princesses that uh, the oldest one, I think it was Olga or the oldest daughter, anyway, Maria, maybe I'm sorry. I've I've got their names mixed up Mm -hmm. uh, that 
she was not wearing a corset because her family was punishing her because she had flirted with a Russian soldier. And I thought, so they took her underwear away? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Holy <laughs> man would say that, sorry. <laughs> you know, that just, I was like, my head was going, bam, bam, bam. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. They, they were practically Victorian. They weren't, yeah. you, know, you know, but I mean, they were in such an era and they were, you know, they didn't have like, you know, the roaring 20s coming in there to Russia. Right. Uh, they were still very restricted corsets. So I thought, well, what happened to it? And of course, that is the premise for my book, Raiders of the Lost Corset. Uh-huh. And I think that it was, you know, there was a whole terrible mess. And I think that when they were stripping the bodies, I think a couple of soldiers hidden, hid it away. Oh, so yeah, and wow. that it exists today somewhere, and Lacey Smithsonian is on the trail. <laughs> um, uh, another question uh, I wanted to know: Can clothing be haunted? Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's a and, good question. Uh, yeah, and I went to the Smithsonian costume collection at the um, at the. Museum of American History, and I spoke yeah. with the women who had the collection, and it was just one of the most fabulous interviews of my life. Yeah. Um, and I found really that clothing is is not one of those things that is typically haunted. They had no, you know, and they've got from the 1600s, and it's all American clothing that is in their collection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from the 1600s to present day. Although they did have a couple of things I thought were interesting. And one of them that I remember is they had a a wedding dress that they called the bad luck dress because the bride died very shortly after her wedding. So, you know, and I think that a lot of us, we have superstitions about clothing. We have feelings about clothing. Why do we keep going to that really worn out sweater that makes us feel so good right it's comfort thing yeah yeah Yeah. it's comforting you know we have feelings about them so um i i really love that uh you know places um in raiders of the lost corset uh paris and new orleans figure in the book Mm -hmm. and that's because i found that there are streets and street corners in paris that actually there are the same names of streets and the same street corners in New Orleans. So, well, I'm not surprised. Yeah. 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 That makes sense since it was. So, uh, yeah. you know, so we have clues that send us to Paris. Oh, I'm going to have to read this one. That maybe they're in New Orleans as well. Ah, mm-hmm. So, uh, that was uh, fascinating. So, um, research. Uh, inspires me. Um, people inspire me. I'm always inspired by women who have worked hard and um, have succeeded in, you know, a male world. Yeah. Um, I think one of the first women who really inspired me uh, is a playwright named Mary Chase. She was from Denver. Hmm. She wrote the play Harvey. Okay. And she was a reporter at the Rocky Mountain News in like the teens or the twenties. And this is one thing I'm using um, in Crook Tales uh, is that, you know, they, they would always haze the women, you know, yeah. a woman reporter thinks she can do the job. Well, she, they made her cover the boxing matches. And if you were a reporter in like 1920 and had to cover the boxing matches, first of all, they were very bloody. Yeah. I hope I don't upset your listeners. Oh no, it's funny. It's fine. About yeah, blood no, and that's, that's okay. But Mary, Mary Chase was very small and they made them carry their Underwood typewriters, which were like 20 pounds yeah. of typewriter over their heads through the mob of, you know, f- people watching the fight. They had to sit in the front row. Oh my gosh. Typing up their stories as the fight was going, getting blood all over their stories and themselves. So, oh, wow. you know, I think you definitely want to wear a hat and a, an old coat yeah. because, and all I think now is, wow, bloodborne pathogens. I know, exactly. <laughs> Ew, exactly. <laughs> hey, speaking but, of um, boxing, um, one of my former co- uh, co-workers from BNA, and I don't think she would mind if I say it actually, because her husband is all like excited to tell us this. Once we went for like a, like a, dinner at her house like with the whole like unit or whatever this is when i worked on medicare medicaid um compliance library 
And her husband was so adorable. He was so like um, excited to show us a photo. His wife, who was my coworker, um, had dated Muhammad Ali, believe it or not. Yeah. Oh, I, I believe it. Yeah, my goodness. I know. <laughs> so we've, we've got some characters from BNA. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, all those things. And then Mary Chase, uh, I believe was the first woman to win a Pulitzer prize for Harvey for her play. Wow. And, um, she lived in this very exclusive section of Denver country club. Uh-huh. And before I moved back East, a friend of mine and I would drive past her house and she had called her house, the house, the rabbit built. And we would go past it and go the house, the rabbit built <laughs> and it was because Mary chase used her imagination to write this ma- marvelous play that's done every year somewhere wow. in schools and community theater. You can see Harvey. So, so actually she was one of my heroes. Um, I always appreciated women who, who were advanced and who were fighters. And, um, you know, I appreciate Lillian Hellman now and, and Mary McCarthy and some of the older um, women who really had to struggle against, you know, male bastion, yeah. that kind of thing. So yeah. um, I'm sure there are many more. I, I think off the top of my head, I'm mm-hmm. not thinking about it, but you know, and all the women in World War II, I, I do find them very inspiring. The women who, God bless them, women who would marry a, a soldier after three days. Right. He would disappear for three years and she would have a baby. Yeah. And she would have to make her way in the world. I mean, there's so many uh, brave women and, and women who had to, you know, make do with what they had and it wasn't a real great bargain and a lot of them also like worked in the factories because all the men were gone so that kind of opened things up really for women working outside of the home it did and one thing that i a lot of people are not aware of is that when the men came home and the women were shoved out after making their own money after you know rising in the business after being bosses uh, a lot of women committed suicide Oh my gosh, I didn't know. Wow. I can imagine. Yeah, Yeah, because that's a huge change for the power dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you go from being uh, an executive in your factory or your office and high powered and making your own money and this lug comes home and wants to be master of the house? You know, it's just, uh, it's wild. Yeah. Now, not all men would, but, you know, a good deal those men had PTSD. Right. And uh, then I think what you see after that is you see the cocktail generation where people were getting blotto every night. Oh, yeah, because the you woman know. was expected to serve the husband the, the martini when he came home and, you know. Yeah, right. I guess that just must have kept them quiet. Right. Them, you know, <laughs> you know, your status has fallen. Right. And then you have this guy come in that you don't know because you married him after three days. Right. So, um, I, I just think that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So, so many people to to take inspiration from. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me today. Um, it was really a pleasure to be able to reconnect with you and talk about your books yeah. and plays. <laughs> so thank great. You. Thank it's been a real treasure for me. It's been wonderful yeah. to, to get back in touch. Yeah. It's just like, wow. I know. <laughs> for so. For our listeners, Ellen has generously offered to give away one of her books, Mask of the Red Dress. To enter the giveaway, let us know that you listened to this episode by commenting on our Instagram page at All Things Relax. Readers who sign up for Ellen's newsletter can get a link to a free book, ebook, for Killer Hair, the first book in the Crime of Fashion Mysteries. You can sign up for El- uh, through Ellen's website or on her Facebook author page. Also, on Amazon, Ellen is offering the first five books in her series in a Kindle bundle for Kindle bundle, sorry, for $9.99. They include Killer Hair, Designer Knockoff, Hostile Makeover, Raiders of the Lost Lost Corset, and Grave Apparel. I'll include all of this information in the show notes as well. So I want to thank everyone for listening. We appreciate your support. Ciao. You have been listening to All Things Relax with Sandy D. 
inspiring women to relax, rejuvenate, and find their inner zen. We invite you to leave a comment and review our podcast. Check out our blog at allthingsrelax.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at allthingsrelax. Until next time.